Welcome to the Christine Spray Show, bringing you insights and stories from successful CEOs to help grow your business and increase your revenue. The Christine Spray Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now, here's your host, Christine Spray. Hi, I'm Christine Spray, and welcome to another episode of the Christine Spray Show. For this episode, our guest host is David Spray. He was talking to Bob Hillier, the owner of several Paul Davis franchises, a company that provides services to clean up and repair damage to institutional, residential, and commercial properties caused by storm, fire, water, mold, or other disasters. Bob's franchises are in Houston, Texas, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Although Bob bought his first franchise from Paul Davis just five years ago, he already leads one of the largest franchise groups within Paul Davis. But it was most interesting is how he achieved such rapid success despite having no background in the cleanup and restoration industry. Rather, he was a very successful executive with several large financial institutions. But interesting enough, you will learn about several of his skills that did transfer nicely to his current venture. Bob also discusses what advice he might have given his 25-year-old self. There is a lot of great insights from this successful business executive turned entrepreneur. Now let's get to that episode. Hi, Bob. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. So I'm an accountant, which means I'm kind of a chronological thinker. So let's let's kind of go back to the beginning. Are you a native Houston? I'm not, actually. I uh, grew up in Canada, uh, in Saskatchewan, Canada. My dad was a farmer. Okay. And so I grew up on the farm and and made my way down to Houston in the late 90s. Okay. And what was it that, that brought you uh, to Houston? A job, I presume? I was, uh, yeah, the job. Yep. We were, I'd started my career with Ernst & Young and uh, one of my clients was, was Enron. And we had moved to Calgary, Alberta and Canada at, that t- at the time. And Enron asked me to join them in Calgary to work on their trading desk and around their technology and operations space, which I did. And then a year later, they asked me to move to Houston to do a similar thing for a part of the business that was based in Houston. So we made the move. We had two kids at the time, and and we had two more once we moved to once we moved down here. So we were a mixed up citizenship group for a family for a while. But uh, <laughs> I bet because two of them were born here, so they were automatic yeah. U.S. citizens, right? Yeah, that's exactly it. So it was always strange when we went to the airport, but now they're all growing. Everybody's an American, so we're all we're all in good shape. Well, that's uh, that's great. Yeah, it's funny because you know Enron and Arthur Anderson, where I started my career, both have you know a stigma to kind of the casual person. But mm-hmm. in Houston, Texas, the the tentacles of both Anderson and Enron are very deep. And there's a lot of successful ventures that spun off of those. So in the circles I run in, you know, Enron is uh, is viewed and Anderson are viewed in a much higher degree of respect than in a lot of places. Do you find that yeah, I think true that, also I, yeah. in Houston? Yeah, I agree. I think it is. And especially for people that, you know, had any, whether they worked there or whether they interacted with people that did. You know, I obviously it didn't end well, and there's obviously some, you know, a bunch of things that uh, 
were done that shouldn't have been done, but the the innovation and the desire to just solve problems and get things done and the you know the intelligence level of people that were involved in trying to make things happen and grow businesses and stuff was really it really was enjoyable to be part obviously a few more controls in a few areas would have been would have <laughs> sure. been better but <laughs> but i think yeah yeah i did i did enjoy the experience uh while i was while i was there and obviously i was there right at the end which was obviously a little less enjoyable but uh but nonetheless i learned a lot from the process yeah, and then I think you UBS uh, bought the platform, and you you joined there yeah. to help with uh, the integration. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. While I was in Enron, we you know we rolled out the Enron online trading platform, which is like the first online energy trading platform of its kind. And uh, great experience. Learned a lot from that from that experience as well. And you know when Enron went bankrupt, it was one of the things that uh, was marketable. And mm-hmm. uh, the wholesale trading business, as well as the platform, was sold to UBS. So I, I went from, I came from the cold in Canada, and then I went back to the cold in Connecticut. That process lasted a little less time with the family because they were, I would say, it's not that Connecticut is a beautiful uh, place to live in, but they'd gotten really comfortable with the climate in Houston. So it happens back to the cold. <laughs> Was not was not as exciting uh, prospect as as I was hoping. So uh, we didn't stay up there for long, but but it was a good experience while we were there. Sure. So so then you came back to Houston in a, a variety of roles with a variety of financial firms, but you just the family just wanted to go back to the Northeast one more time. I take it around 2012. Is that right? You just needed to do one more stint in the Northeast. Well. Yeah, well, they no, the family was not interested in going back to the Northeast. <laughs> so I actually commuted for, uh, for I guess, seven years. Oh, uh, wow. I spent time traveling back and forth from Houston to New York. One of the things that we were doing at J.P. Morgan at the time is we were building out a technology and operations center in Houston. So I did get to spend a reasonable amount of time in Houston, at least. And then when I joined Merrill Lynch, which obviously right right as I was joining became became part of Bank of America. Mm-hmm. There was a commodities business that was in Houston, so I was my original start there was to be involved in the commodities business. So I spent some time in Houston doing that. But as the fixed income business uh, grew more and more, I was spending more and more time in in New York and London and Hong Kong, where all the big trading centers were. So travel was a big part of it, and. My wife knew that and and uh, wanted to live where she wanted to live if I was going to be on a plane most of the time anyways. And so we stayed in Houston from a residence perspective, and I, I was a road warrior for a number of years. Wow, I don't know how you do it That's uh, or how you did it. That's a I've just had smaller, shorter stints at that, and it, I struggled with any kind of normalcy and not gaining 10 pounds a week, it seemed like, but that I was on the road. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It, yeah, it, it definitely, it took a while for me to get used to it and I got the routine running and I was, I was okay, but, but it, it was a lot of time away and, you know, the, the kids were in middle school and stuff at the time. And, and so as they were starting to get into the high school ages, I was just like, man, I really need to do something that keeps me a little bit closer to home. So 
Gotcha. And that brings us switch out of the trade that, yeah, I made the switch out of the trading business for for what I'm doing today at that point. Yeah. So let's talk about it because it seems like about 180 degree change, but I bet you're going to tell me that there's still a lot of things you learned in your prior role or roles that uh, ended up being able to apply to this business. So, so what are you up to these days? What was the big shift you made? So in 2016, when I left banking, I had intended to take some time off, but you can appreciate that I went from being on the road all the time to now at home all the time. <laughs> and <laughs> Be careful what your wife wishes wished for. Huh? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. I think she'd like me to be at home sometimes, but maybe not all the time. So we, anyways, quickly discovered that while I love golf, I can only play so much of it and I needed to find something else to do. And, and I went in search of, uh, a, you know, a business to either partner in or buy or do something where I could, you know, be involved in running my own space. And through a series of events, I got uh, contacted by a, a franchise consulting company that basically said, Hey, I know you're looking for something in Houston. If you, you know, tell me a little bit about what you're interested in and I'll go find you some franchise companies that have territories and stuff available in Houston and maybe we'll find a match. And he came back with, with some really, and quite frankly, I may I step back. I didn't know anything about franchising at that point. So Mm -hmm. he came back with a variety of different interesting kind of business opportunities in the franchising space. And I would have never thought of quite frankly, Hmm. but one of them was in the restoration space um, it was not the company I ended up going with in the end, but it did get me some exposure to the restoration business. And and so over time, I got comfortable with the Paul Davis brand. And, you know, six years later, we're, you know, we own 10 franchises in Texas and a couple in North Carolina and are working on some other acquisitions in other parts of the country. So it's been a it's been a great a great experience, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about the details of it. But that's how it that's how it got started was just this individual sort of telling me about franchising, and that got me interested in this industry, which has been which has it's been a lot of fun. And you're right, there is a lot of experience that that translated to this to the job I do today, and and I think probably one of them was you know probably the most prominent one is I'd always, my job, even though I was running very large organizations, I still felt like in the banking and trading business that my job was just to find really good talent. And if I found really good talent to join the team, good things would happen. And when I joined this business, I found myself in exactly the same spot. Sure. I'm not a restoration expert. I'm not a, I'm not a construction expert. But what I found is that there's a lot of people who know a lot about this business who are just trying to build a good career and, and develop a good uh, lifestyle for the family. And I spent my time, you know, trying to find those people and, and connect the right dots and, and uh, bring them into the organization, help them be successful here. And so there was that correlated very well with what I'd spent most of my career doing. And I continue to do that today, quite frankly. Well, that's awesome. Well, the thing I find so interesting, so I'm a big, I'm a big fan of franchising and I think there's, and you know, and and then the book, the E-Myth, he talks about building your business as if you were going to franchise it to, to develop, you know, standard operating procedures and such. But what I find so interesting is given 
the sophistication and scale of the organizations you'd worked at and given the you know kind of level that you'd attained at those organizations i could imagine that your knee-jerk reaction or a a person with that background your knee-jerk reaction might have been oh i should be the franchisor the franchisee or for the people who you know maybe aren't as savvy or sophisticated business people mm-hmm. But but I can appreciate. But, but anyway, so I mentioned that because it it seems interesting, and there must have been a certain amount of humility to go down that track. Did you? Does what I say kind of make sense? Mm-hmm. Like, can you understand that? I do. Yeah. And, and I imagine I there understand. were probably folks. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So please talk more no, about that. No, I was just I was just gonna say I, I get the yeah I absolutely get the point, and you know there's there are a lot of different types of franchises that function very differently. And I had no idea, quite frankly. And Mm -hmm. when I sort of looked at the franchises that he was talking to me about, there were some that you walked into. There's a prescribed set of things to do. Follow this playbook and you'll produce X amount of dollars a year. And you can rinse and repeat that and buy several of them, you know, depending on your capital appetite and how Mm -hmm. much money you're trying to make. And then there were others that, well, they did, you know, every one of them had a set of processes. There were others that were sort of built a little bit more with the entrepreneur in mind. Okay. And that's the thing that, and quite frankly, that's the, the that was the Paul Davis approach, which is, was attractive to me. So we do a number of things, right? We do the mitigation work, which is you've got a, you know, you've had supply line on your toilet break or you've had a washing machine overflow or you've been unfortunate and been in a flood situation at the very sort of core of it we come in and we clean up the mess right and that's our mitigation department we drive structures out and get them ready so that they can be uh, repaired and whatnot so that's a portion of the business that we do we're also got a professional moving company that goes out and packs out people's contents and does all the inventory and figures out what's salvageable and what's not after you've been in a fire. And we clean contents and we store them in our warehouse, et cetera. That's another part of the business. And hmm. and then we do reconstruction work on, you know, to do the repairs of the property. And we do mold and lead and asbestos abatement because, you know, properties have those issues as well. But what's cool about the Paul Davis model was you don't have to do all of those things. You can do some of those things, you can do some of them a lot more and a lot on a lot grander scale than other things, but it gave the entrepreneur in my, you know, what I was discovering in myself, the opportunity to sort of decide on the business mix and how many, how much effort I wanted to put into any one of the various divisions that we now run. And that was exciting to me. It sort of kept the mm. entrepreneurial kind of mindset going with some structure and some learnings that I could get from other franchisees who were doing the same things. Hmm. And so that's probably the thing that sort of made the Paul Davis model work for me because it wasn't just a prescribed here, follow this checklist. There was some of that in each one of those components I just discussed, but how much you wanted to follow, how much of the different types of businesses you wanted to do, do you, you know, do you want to, how much selling do you want to do versus how much, you know, assignment receiving you want to do from insurance companies. And there was a lot of variability in the business model that each of the franchisees can, you know, decide for themselves. 
And I thought that was an exciting part of the brand uh, Mm -hmm. for someone like myself. Oh, that's, I really appreciate that insight because we had a, a, a busted water pipe in our last house and, you know, we'd called in a, a, a firm and they did a good job, but they weren't at all involved in the reconstruction or even, mm-hmm. I don't think even the storage. I mean, it was like they were hyper-focused on just, you know, they got, so our flooding was, it was an upstairs pipe that, uh, yeah we'd hired somebody to put in some new mirrors and the gentleman putting the mirror in above a bathroom vanity didn't follow their normal protocol because he was running late and he used a drill to insert the, uh, the wall support uh, and, uh, yeah. and he and hit a water yeah. pipe and even more crazy. He, when it happened, he thought for sure he was going to get fired. So he just left. Oh, yeah, yeah that's, so it that's was helpful. a it, yeah, but so our situation they we we got somebody in real quick. I don't remember how, and I was out of town how my wife got them in, but they so our situation was a little different. Like once they got they figure out how to turn off the water to the house, we had a situation of you know, we had sheetrock damage on the on mm-hmm. that wall on all three floors, and then we had some standing water on the ground. So like, I don't think we moved the furniture out. I think we just had to raise it. They just raised it. Right. So, yeah. so I, so I find it interesting cause I had no idea because when I was thinking that you all did kind of that same piece. So I find it interesting, the diversity. And so what I kind of want to drill into is you said you had the uh, opportunity to kind of do whatever you wanted. So could you give me a sense as far as which, what role you choose to play? Are you involved in sales? Are you just operated at a very high leadership level? What's your, or has it evolved as you've added more franchises? Yeah, it's definitely evolved a bit. At the beginning, when you're, you know, I was starting out in, you know, a new business at the end of the day and you, you know, do your best at recruiting, but there's, you know, you're trying to manage your capital. And so you play a lot of roles at that first stage of the business well there's three to five of you in the office doing the work mm-hmm. so i have absolutely went out and set up dehumidifiers and air movers and helped take people's floors out and cut drywall and all that kind of stuff at the beginning I, you know i've helped pack people's houses out etc now i you know i've you know our team is about a 110 people at this point and you know i've got experts in all of those functions that I just described. And quite frankly, you don't want me to be the guy (laughs) doing that work, right? You want the experts showing up to do that work. And we've sort of modeled our business on the idea that we want people to do what they're great at. And we don't want people to do what they're poor at, but we don't even want people to do what necessarily they're mediocre at. And so Mm -hmm. our business model is built on the basis that we're going to provide, we're going to be the one-stop shop for our customer. And that means that in your case, if you need the drywall dried out, if you need your, your contents just moved around and not packed out, that's fine. If you need the reconstruction done, we're going to do whatever it is that takes your property back to its pre-loss condition. And we're going to put experts in your property for each of the components that are necessary to make sure you get back to that pre-loss condition. 
And so we have, you know, you may see an expert around drying and doing the demo and stuff show up and manage that process. You'll see a different expert show up and do the contents work, a different one running the general contractor process and making sure that we're repairing your property, et cetera, as necessary. But our goal is to put, you know, the people in their best seats. A, they perform the best, they enjoy their job the most, and customers get the best experience because they're getting people that are really qualified at, at doing the tasks that they're doing. The only, you know, sort of thing that, that we have to manage during that process because of the fact that we have different people in, in the property is we have to make sure we connect the dots for the customer so they know who's coming. And so that's mm-hmm. been the thing that I've been working on with the team is just making sure that we have the right, you know, the right people that sort of glue it all together for the customer. So it does actually feel like one company doing the work for them. And and that's what's been standing out to our customers is they like to be able to make the one phone call and understand that they're going to get all of the needs met and their and the property back to that pre-loss condition. And they, you know, they're not dealing with five or six contractors to make that happen. No, thank you for that, that clarification. So are like, what percentage of your jobs are like I described where we had a leaking pipe that was, you know, like an emergency situation. Is it most of your engagements, like where you guys have to be out there ASAP? Or is it, is a lot of it, you know, after a flood and it's after the waters have receded, where it's not quite as urgent because like it's already in bad shape? How does that kind of break down? We, yeah, so we do, we definitely do the majority of our work for your type of situation. We're building a, we're building an organic business that lives and breathes and contributes in the community that we live in to meet those needs and be there, you know, in our, like, you know, we have a a commitment in our company to make sure we're showing up in no, no more than two hours, often within an hour of people having, you know, a situation like you just described. We definitely are involved in the floods and the hurricanes and all that kind of stuff. But for us, that's a, that's an ancillary kind of product of what we do, but our, our real core business focus is, you know, being there when somebody had a fire or somebody had a situation like you're describing and, or somebody's unfortunately got a, a mold or asbestos issue in their property. And we do this commercially and, and residentially. So our, our real focus is that our sales team and our business development focus is getting the brand out there and making sure that people understand that we're here to help in those times. And we try to do a really good job of that in the communities that we're serving. Mm-hmm. And then when a hurricane comes up, we definitely go to that and we try to help there as well. But it's not the mm-hmm. thing where we're not building our business around that. It's just, you know, obviously when a weather event happens, people need people like us. And so we're going to try to be there and, and uh, service those customers at that time as well. No, well, thank you for that clarification. I can't imagine how you find, retain staff to be able to have that degree of responsiveness? Because I'm guessing that these incidents don't predictably happen between eight and five, Monday through Friday. What's the, because I'm guessing it's probably more difficult to hire people who when you tell them, oh yeah, and part of your job is getting a phone call in the middle of the night on a Saturday night and you have to jump Mm -hmm. up and drop everything. Is it harder to find those kinds of people? Well, it's, I mean, 
you know, I'd be lying to you if I told you that people really enjoy the 10 o'clock Saturday night or 2 a.m. Saturday night calls because <laughs> they, you know, obviously they don't. But I think, you know, our, you know, the vision around our company and in fact, the vision around our brand is serving people in their time of need. And we try to find people that join the organization to sort of have the same passion, right? And so when they have the same passion and when we can offer them a work environment where it's not every Saturday night that they have to be the ones on call to deal with that, but they, you know, maybe they do it once a month and where they can join a company where, you know, we respect all the talent at whatever level and whatever their responsibilities are. And it's one of our, you know, one of our values is respecting the individual. And we find like a lot of our competitors don't seem to be as respectful of all the talent that you need in a company. And so they feel like our culture kind of support the vision and it supports their passion because they, you know, they get real satisfaction out of helping people when they're, you know, when they've had a bit of bad luck. Right. And that's, mm-hmm. that's largely what's happened. And it's what I didn't realize before I got in this business is how often that happens. I'd never had an insurance claim actually, before I bought this business, I've had two since then, but uh, <laughs> right. my own set of my own set of bad luck, but, but it's, it's really been, it's enjoyable watching people that are starting out their careers with us who are passionate about helping people and they're building a career while they're doing it. And they're, you know, they started out in the mitigation group and now they're, you know, been through a bunch of training and got some experience and are maybe working in the contents group or working in the reconstruction area or whatever. And they're able to sort of grow their career in ways that are meaningful to them. So it's been, I think as we continue to do that, where we become an attractive employer and in the places we're doing business and, and people want to be part of that. And so, I mean, everybody struggles to find the right people. We're no exception, but I think we've been pretty fortunate in trying to stick to our values and as a result, attract the people that have the same values as we do. And mm-hmm. at the end of the day, that makes for a great customer experience and employees are happy, customers are happy, and the business keeps moving forward, which is exciting to be part of. Sure. Now, that's really interesting. And I was envisioning like, I have a brother who lives out of state who would like be kind of your perfect person. Like he's the guy that all of his friends call when there's problem Mm. or crisis and he just kind of does it. It's just like part of his nature. So for him, Mm -hmm. you know, what you're talking about would kind of feel sort of normal and he gets satisfaction from helping people. And so I can kind of imagine people people in the service industry. Yeah. People in the service industry, right. Who are Mm -hmm. concierges at hotels. Right. Mm -hmm. That's what they do. Right. They help people have a, you know, in this case, they're helping people have a great experience when they show up at the hotel. But that translates into our business. If people want to help people when they need it, you know, we have opportunities for that. And uh, and you can tell when people are genuine about it versus when people are acting. And those that are genuine about it enjoy the experience. The customer feels that. And, you know, our ability to sort of meet their expectations is so much better. Okay. No, that that's really interesting. So let's talk uh, a bit more about the the business side of things. Did you start off with just mm-hmm. one franchise or or a number of franchises? I bought three franchises on the north side of Houston. From like and, one individual uh, or from the It was company? actually it was brand new open territory. Yeah. Okay. So we sell, the franchises are sold uh by zip code 
Okay. Uh, and then population size within the zip code. So you buy mm-hmm. X number of zip codes to to get to certain population sizes. Keep the franchise codes, if you will, similar size. And so that when we talk about owning a franchise, it means something, right? It's, you know, what size people are talking about, how many people are in the, mm-hmm. in the particular zip codes. And so I started out with three. And then there was another owner in Houston who had started about the same time. And he had discovered that maybe business ownership, at least in this particular industry, might not be exactly what he wanted to do. And so he and I had a conversation and I was in the position where I could could buy his, his territory from him. So we did that. And then so at the time that he owned, he owned three as well. Okay. So, so that took um, you to six. Yeah. Yeah. Then we increased the size of the territories that, you know, to be standard across the brand. So we doubled the size of the territory. So then I bought more territory, but I was able to incorporate it into the six franchise codes that I had because we okay. expanded the size. And then just last year, we bought four more territories in Houston. So we, we own the entire Houston territory for the most part and have 10 franchises in, in the Houston market. And early last year, we bought uh, two franchises out in Raleigh, North Carolina. Oh, okay. And as well. And so we had, again, that was a new startup for us. And we had a number of customers who had properties both out in the Carolinas as well as in Houston. So it made good sense for us to do that. Mm. You know, like I said, we do go to hurricanes and being having sort of a launch pad from the East Coast when that happens is helpful for us as well. And Raleigh Durham's a great city and a great market for us, and so we we're excited about adding it to our to our set of franchises. And so it's been a, it's been an exciting, you know, startup again. There we've got a great uh, GM there now that is running the place and and living our values and delivering for customers. And we continue to grow in the North Carolina market as well, which is exciting to watch. Oh, that is that that is exciting. So. Help me understand where the business comes from a little bit more. Is it sure. just people do, you know, SEO or, you know, they do a website search and SEO ranking, it pops up. Is it more of a business development referral source model where you're, you've got, you know, people developing relationships with insurance adjusters and, you know, plumbers and real estate people kind of give me a sense of sort of how that business origination kind of comes from, I mean, you know, without giving away all sure. your trade secrets. <laughs> yeah, no, no worries. All, I mean, all the things you mentioned and some others, right? So in the residential space, there are a number of insurance companies who have relationships with companies like ours. And so if you're, you know, whatever insurance company you're with, if you happen to have a claim that you're calling in, you'd make that phone call and the insurance company would connect with uh, connect us with you. And we would show up and talk to you about our services and assuming that what you heard and, you know, you'd have, you would engage with us to to perform the work. So that's a, a reasonably common approach. And there's a lot of franchises who, you know, build their entire business model around that. We certainly, you know, do a lot of business that originates from in that way. There's no two ways about it. Mm-hmm. But the second component for us is on the sort of sales side of the business. We have relationships with plumbers. We use plumbers, obviously, in our general contracting business. And they get a call from, from a homeowner and 
need their service, but then need our service as well. So those relationships add value to us for sure. People that, you know, whose houses are on fire, you know, we have relationships with the fire departments, et cetera. And, you know, we'll show up just to help, just to, you know, help take care of pets or board up their property or, you know, those kinds of things. And, you know, again, we'll build a relationship with the customer and they may choose to to use us for the reconstruction of their house that was on fire. So there's a number of different ways that, that the, you know, the business can originate. We definitely get calls from our SEO and pay, paid search digital marketing space as well. And then on the commercial side, it's more about developing relationships with commercial partners, property managers and, and mm-hmm. uh, school systems and, and healthcare uh, facilities, et cetera. You know, they're, they want to know that they can trust people. So they, it's a longer term prospect. You have to get to know them. They have to get to know you and get comfortable with what you, uh, who you are as a person, but also the capabilities that your company has. And so over time you get, you, show them that you're capable and maybe smaller jobs, et cetera. And then you become their vendor of choice. So all of, you know, we're, we have, like I said, there's a number of franchises who desire their goal when they started their franchise was to build a smaller business, not in have to invest so much capital, but just, you know, work with insurance companies and develop that relationship and get those claims and there's other companies like ours who have invested fairly heavily in the sales and business development side that are out um, searching for the work in addition to getting called into the work because of our relationship with the insurance companies. Okay. No, thank you. That's, that is interesting. I, now that I think about it, I think it's our insurance company was how we uh, found our restoration people. I think that was my yeah, wife. Yeah, quite likely. That's a very normal process. And and there's even groups now that are, you know, almost like outsourcing the claims management process for a mm. few insurance companies, right? And and okay. so having relationships with those companies, those those third party administrators that are that are handling the claims management process is an important part of our business as well. We obviously know who they are and have relationships with them and, and make sure that we deliver well for them because they want to deliver well for the insurance company. And so that's a great way for us to sort of get introduced to clients as well that are looking for our services. Okay. Got it. So, so you, you know, acquired the, the three brand new territories and then you've had some acquisition and some organic mm-hmm. growth. Has it just been all smooth sailing and just kind of a straight linear line up with, you know, 10% compounding growth every month or, have you had any challenges uh, along the way? Oh, there's been a couple of challenges okay. <laughs> along the way, for sure. <laughs> what Can you um, think of one that you're comfortable talking about that was a yeah. you know, significant yeah, challenge and, and maybe some of the lessons and hidden benefits that came from it when it was all said and done? Yeah. Um, so we, we, we had a very strong growth trajectory, like 30, 40% a year revenue growth. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of processes involved in collecting cash from insurance companies and mortgage companies, et cetera, when somebody has a loss. And we did not really understand 
all the details of that process as well as we should have. And so we found that the capital need was higher than we had anticipated, and we had to actually go and find other sources of funding. Mm-hmm. Which, fortunately, I've been in the banking business, so I know how to I know how to do that. Right. Um, so you asked me earlier: Is there are, are there transferable skills between the two? You know, the the ability to you know go find talent obviously is an important part of what I do every day. But the second part is that. It is a capital intensive business. And honestly, I probably underestimated how intense it was for the growth rate that we were achieving. Sometimes your own success can put you mm-hmm. in some bad spots if you're not if you're not sort of aware of what that does to you. So I was you know, I was fortunate that I've got experience in finance and understand how capital works and have relationships with banks and others and and we were able to navigate that. But I think, you know, I've talked to many franchises since who have been a little less fortunate, maybe didn't have the relationships, et cetera. So not understanding the capital needs is kind of an important part of what we do. And through my experience, I've been able to sort of help a number of other franchisees who are also growing at a heavy rate, sort of understand what their capital needs might be and project them out a little bit better than what, than certainly what I did. So we learned a lot about, you know, managing cash and, the, you know, the team has developed a lot in that regard and our, you know, our relationships from a financial perspective have grown. We continue to grow. We've never really wanted to take our foot off the gas, but we do want to figure these things out. Well, I guess, you know, working on the engine of the airplane is an analogy that you always hear while it's flying. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit more challenging, but sure. uh, it's certainly part of what we're doing. And so that was probably one thing that I really learned. I think this, the second challenge is, is like any business, you know, the right amount of supervision of staff, making sure they have the right tools, the right people are sort of checking in and making sure that they can, you know, offer training and help people sort of grow is, was probably a bit harder in this industry than maybe in some others. We're keep in mind that most of our people are not working in our office. They're working all over the city. And so providing those training on the job training opportunities to make sure that we're delivering uh, best in class service for our customers was a bit more challenging than I probably thought through as well. So we've developed other techniques to, to make sure that we're appropriately getting people trained both on the job and in classroom settings that when we started this out, that wasn't part of what we were thinking about. And we certainly learned that was an important part of what we're doing. And when you're on, you know, if you're in 50 or 75 different locations every week with your staff, there's challenges associated with that versus when all your staff is working in one one location. So uh, mm-hmm. uh, it's been a process that we've had to go through and develop sort of different techniques around the training and, and the people management that other businesses may not have experienced. It was certainly, certainly a bit different for me. Yep. No, thank you for that, for that color. I when you think of service business, you don't think about capital intensive, but when I mm. imagine our people, or at least I wouldn't, but when I think about the the trucks, the, you know, the commercial grade wet vacs, the dehumidifiers, the yeah. fans, and then I imagine insurance companies don't just, you know, pay within 15 days of you submitting your invoices. Yeah. I could see why it, it would be very capital intensive. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of financial interest in properties, right? Mortgage companies, for instance. And so when you end up with money in the 
in a mortgage escrow, right? They want to be comfortable before they pay out as well. So there's oh. a lot of parties involved. And, you know, we kind of underestimated the amount of effort that it takes to sort of keep track of all that and make sure everybody's moving that forward at a pace that, that is supportable by the company. But that's also an opportunity though, right? Because a an operation that's that's not as well run. So I, I guess what I'm saying, it, in a way, it makes the barriers to entry higher, right? Because on the surface, it seems right. like you know, anybody with a shop vac, a dehumidifier, and a van could get into the business. But as I hear you drill down into it, the barriers to entry are actually much higher than might first seem obvious. Yeah, that is very true. I mean, you can definitely be involved in doing the mitigation work, but again, you're going to have to suffer through the payment structure. But obviously, as you get into reconstruction and the complications of the jobs get get larger, the adjusters obviously have to be more involved in the process. We have licensed adjusters working for us that sort of help manage that as well. But the complications get large. The, the uh, skill set that you need to handle bigger and bigger projects get more challenging. And mm-hmm. for every one of those steps up, the capital requirements increase. And yep. so I think that's probably why you see a number of restoration companies that sort of stay at that million and a half or $2 million a year range because they, you know, they may not have the capital to grow like they need to. They may not want to grow, right? There's nothing wrong with being the business owner of a million or $2 million business, right? There's mm-hmm. certainly some, some value in, involved in that, but if you do want to grow, then yes, there's, you know, it takes a strong team of people that are not just managing the uh, physical work that needs to happen, but also the capital and the, the, the collections and contracts and all that kind of stuff that, that mm-hmm. do increasingly become more complicated as you grow. Now that makes sense. So as we're kind of rounding the home stretch here, I've just got a, a couple more questions. So you've talked about one of your one of your biggest, I guess, surprises or unexpected situations with the greater degree of capitalization than you might have anticipated. But I bet you've also had uh, a pleasant surprise as well. What comes to mind Mm. is one of the things, the, the great things about the business that you didn't anticipate on the front end that was a pleasant surprise? You know, there's there's been a couple. One is it's hard to describe. Well, you would understand this, but it's hard to describe how rewarding it is after somebody's gone through a a pretty devastating experience. And, you know, yours might not have been as bad as some others, but I'm sure Sure. how you felt when the job was finished and you were finally like back in your home, you know, and everything was working and finished and you didn't have people in working in and out of your house. There's that felt pretty good for you. It also feels really good for the for us, right? When we're able to sort of celebrate the fact that you know you've worked through this challenge in your life, and we mm-hmm. were able to be part of that and help sort of make that you know get that done for you. And uh, I'd never done that kind of work before. Obviously, you know the work I'd been involved in banking was a little bit you know less of a connection to individuals, you know, sort of right, in, right. in their financial space, right? It was, I was removed between technology and all that other stuff that sits in between all of that. So it was pretty cool to sort of watch that happen. And it was just a cool experience for me just to sort of experience that and at the beginning and sort of see customers and how excited they were when they got to, you know, everything back to normal. 
but it's probably expanded as I watch the team do that. And what's really cool is you get to watch some folks who, you know, may come in and start very junior, you know, hourly people in your organization really have a passion for it. And now they're, you know, their career is flourishing. They're, they've been providing customers with great service. They've been promoted up through the organization. You know, they get married and buy a house with their family and stuff, all this kind of stuff that, you know, starts to create the culture in your company and people start having that sense of pride for, hey, I work for a good company. My, my career is moving somewhere. We're doing good things and customers are, you know, generally happy with, with the work that we're doing. I mean, not every customer is happy for in any business, sure. including sure. ours, but generally are happy with the, you know, with the work. And you get to celebrate that, this not pleasant experience that they had to, you know, endure to get to this point has been, has been really cool to watch. And, and it's something I hear from the team more often than not, that they didn't anticipate that the, they'd feel that sense of accomplishment along the path. So, so that's been, it's been cool to watch. And then it's like any other job. I'm just, I'm thrilled to, you know, people come work for us and want to work for us and do great things and, and people surprise you every day. And so it's been interesting. It's been a little bit more of a hands-on kind of with the customer that I hadn't experienced in my previous career. And uh, it's been pretty cool to watch. So and our growth rate has been, I mean, I, you know, no business owner is going to be disappointed, you know, in 30 plus percent growth every year. And that's what this team has been putting out. It's been, it's been really cool to, to see the excitement that comes from that and just, you know, putting people in their spots and letting them do what they're great at has been really fun to watch. And the, the effect of that is a bit more tangible in a smaller company than it is, you know, working in a big bank. Right. So it just, it feels different um, Mm -hmm. um, to me, I think, and in the culture of the business, which has been really cool to watch. No, I think that's great. I've always had a theory that in all economies, there's always a shortage of really good people in any profession. Mm -hmm. Is it safe to say that if somebody joined you, that and it sounds like you've had some examples and they were just very motivated and a good cultural fit and wanted to learn wanted to grow wanted to serve customers were good team players is it safe to say that there's no real limits to their growth potential within your organization yeah yeah i think that, that is definitely true i mean we've only been in business for just about 6 years now but i am uh I'm really pleased with the number of examples of people that started with us early on in that first year, 18 months are still here and the roles that they're playing are, you know, definitely larger than the roles they were playing then. But what's also interesting is to see that they're in different roles because we've discovered and they've discovered that they have a passion for something slightly different right in the space. Hmm. And so, uh, so we get to offer a little bit of diversity just because you start in the mint group. You may find that actually you're a really good content person or a really good bold person or a really good construction manager. Right. And so as we discover those things together, it's uh, cool to watch them sort of make those make changes in their career that they might not have otherwise, you know, considered. Oh, that's great. So I'm down to the last three questions. If you could go back in time and give advice to your 25 year old self, what advice might you give? Take risks. I probably, I had a great, that. listen, I'll never complain about the career that I had. I was very fortunate. Um, 
you know, from, from a farm to Wall Street, it probably isn't a path that most people would uh, would predict. So I'm certainly not complaining at all about the path that I took. But I've really found a lot of fulfillment in sort of owning my own business. And I probably, you know, I probably would have would encourage myself back in the back when I was 25 to maybe do that a little bit earlier in my life. Mm-hmm. I hear sometimes that. Sometimes those things are ri- they're risky, right? They don't feel yeah. necessarily fantastic, you know, but, uh, but it's been pretty cool. Now, that's great. I've heard that when they interview people who are, you know, in the, the twilight of their life and they ask them about regrets. It seems like the regrets are rarely about what they did do, but about what they didn't do. You know, the yeah. places they didn't go, the risks they didn't take. So, yeah, that, that I can understand that. Okay. The final two, this one is, is a fun one. And just give me your like gut reaction. Like, don't even think about it. Okay. Barbecue or Tex-Mex? Barbecue. Okay. Do you, um, and why do you say barbecue? What is it about barbecue that just, that, that, that answer popped into your head? I don't know. Maybe it's my, maybe it's my farm upbringing or something, right? I'm used to, that's what I'm used to. Okay. Don't get me wrong. I do love good Tex-Mex. So, <laughs> but, but uh, probably if I had to choose on this, on the spur of the moment, I am a meat lover. And so uh, it's hard to go wrong, right? When you can have, you know, ribs and chicken yeah. and. Sausage, sausage all and on beef. one place. I mean, like, exactly. You know, what could what could go wrong with that? <laughs> <laughs> no, I I agree. Well, is there anything I should have asked you but didn't? So that's my my final question. Is there anything that uh, you wish I'd asked or that you think we should have covered? You know, I think we covered a lot. Um, I maybe I'll just I'll I would sort of wrap up with you know for people who are thinking about you know, doing something like this, whether it's starting your own business, doing a franchise, something like that. Like I said about, you know, advice I give to myself, you know, 25 years ago would be, you know, take it, you know, take the plunge a little bit earlier in, in your, in your career is, is what I would suggest. But I think as long as, you know, what I've found and, you know, as I've been managing a lot of people over the years is there's uh there's an art to going and finding the right people that fit your culture and whatnot. And don't sacrifice the culture for, for some skill set. You know, the, the culture is what sort of creates the organization and keeps the fiber of it hanging together. And that's probably been the most exciting to watch. And, you know, I think you could talk to a number of people here and, and they're here because of that. They're not here because of me. They're not, you know, some of them aren't, you know, everybody needs to make a living, but you know, the, you know, they might be able to make a few more dollars somewhere else, but I think the culture really speaks to people and, and that gets created off the team. It doesn't even, it, you know, some direction gets set by the owner, but the, but the team dynamic is what really creates it. And that's been really cool to watch. So, you know, I'd encourage people to sort of take the leap if they're thinking about it. It's uh, been a lot of fun for me. Oh, that's great. And so if, uh, if an entrepreneur wants to reach out to you, are you up for a, like a LinkedIn connection? If somebody wants to reach out Absolutely. to you? Absolutely. Yeah, and absolutely. That's, and that's Bob Hillier, H-I-L-I-E-R of uh, Paul Davis that Restoration. Yep. 
Well, that is great. Well, well, Bob, thank you so much for taking time to be on the podcast. And I really love your story, the career change. And I'm really glad that you've been able to uh, learn some new skills and apply some existing skills and enjoy really nice growth rate. It's a, I think it's an inspiring story. Well, thanks a lot for having me. I enjoyed the time with you today and I uh, look forward to catching up in the near future. That sounds great. Have a great day, Bob. And there we have it. Another great episode on the Christine Spray Show. Don't forget to check out the show notes at christinespray.com. And you can find out more about how we can be a resource to you at strategiccatalystinc.com. All the best in your continued success until the next time we talk.